Uh, the Lord had followers, as he does now. The first century followers were in big trouble, you see. They had a hopeful expectation of a kingdom on earth established by, by this Rabbi Yeshua, the one who envisioned to be the Savior and Deliverer and Messiah, but he had been taken captive and he was put on trial and he was treated in a horrific and brutal way. He was humiliated and whipped and all the rest. And then he suffered a very brutal, excruciating uh, murder. He was publicly executed. He was impaled on, on a cross. And when he died, I guess they thought, end of story, that's it. Their hopes are um, dashed upon the rock. There's not only nothing any longer to be hopeful about when their leader perished, um, but they wondered if they're next. They were afraid, intensely afraid. They were living in anticipation of what would happen to them now at the hands of the Jewish religious leadership known as the Sanhedrin. Look what they did to their special leader, uh, this Lord Jesus, and they wondered what would now happen to them. That's the situation a very desperate situation, and I hope you're interested in seeing what happened next. It's given to us in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. We'll look at just a few verses tonight. John 20, verse 19. We could see what happens now to these early followers of the Lord who are now hopeless and fearful and pretty much in disarray. Here's what the text says, John 20, verse 19. So when it was evening that day, so that's a specific day we're talking about. It's the evening of a particular day. What day? Well, it was the day of resurrection. The Lord had risen earlier on this particular day. He left the tomb empty. Grave clothes behind. Up from the grave, he, he arose. And later that day, the day of the resurrection, in the evening of that day, it says it was the first day of the week. It was a Sunday. See, so we know these things. On this particular Sunday, it says, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, here they are, they're huddled together. That's a good thing that they stayed together, uh, but their circumstances were not good. They were terribly, terribly fearful to such extent that they shut tight the doors of the place where they were literally hiding out. Uh, some surmise they probably took refuge in the famous upper room in which they celebrated the Passover or Last Supper with their beloved Lord. They probably made recourse to that place, feeling maybe safer there than any other. But they barred the doors to that particular place. And the, we find out that the doors to this place were not just shut, they were actually locked. And you can perhaps get an image of it here. How do I know that? Well, the, the Greek word for shut means more than that. It means they deliberately locked the doors. They took pains to do what they could to make sure no unwanted visitor would have ex access to their, to their little room in which they were seeking safety. Why did they do this? Well, the text is pretty clear. It says, for fear of the Jews. No, it wasn't all the Jews. Uh, the term means the Jewish religious leadership. Once again, look what they had done to Jesus, their own Messiah. 
and, and therefore his followers wondered, are we next? What's going to happen to us? And so with all kinds of thoughts, if you can imagine, swirling about in their minds and enveloped by fear and doubt and hopelessness, we read, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Shalom, peace be with you. That is a very, very common a Jewish form of greeting. It wasn't unusual, but at this time, I'd like to make the case that it meant much, much more to them than just some common, ordinary greeting. The windows were shut. The doors were locked. They were trembling, and suddenly, and surprisingly, and amazingly, and for sure, miraculously, Yeshua, Jesus, appears standing right there before them, if you can imagine the Seen, and he wasn't just standing, he was speaking, and he uttered these words to terrified disciples. Peace, he said, peace be with you. There was no knock at the door, don't you see? No one went to unlock it in order to let him in, and yet suddenly, there he, there he was, their previously publicly executed Messiah, but not any longer was he Ted, he was very much alive and he was in their midst and now they're finally being persuaded that death did not have the last word at all. Here they saw his literal crucified body and they saw that his literal crucified body gave way to his literal resurrected body and here he now is standing before them. He's very much alive from the dead. His resurrected body had passed through grave clothes now his resurrected body just as easily had passed through their locked door. So they have mixed emotions about this, I believe. See if you track with me about this. Maybe not. I think they're excited beyond words at this point. Wouldn't you be? They thought it's over. It's fatal. There's no hope. Their leader, their savior is gone. And there he is. The one they, they had put their hope in is not dead. He's very much alive from the dead, and they're exhilarated, if you can imagine. I don't think they ever had such joy in their lives. But uh, along with this emotion, I think, was accompanied of feelings of shame, guilt, and an anticipation of rebuke and condemnation. I'll tell you why. Think about it. When Jesus, their leader, was arrested, what did they do? Yeah, they scattered, Patty. They ran for fear of their own lives. I don't think they felt good about that now. In fact, one of them, perhaps one of the most significant, Peter, you know this, he denied this very resurrected Savior. You know this, three times. Not only that, women, we spoke about this, were the first ones to the tomb, weren't they? They saw that it was empty, and they got a message from an angel. The angel said, well, who are you seeking? Do you come seeking Jesus? of now? He is not here, they said, for he has risen. Go tell the others. And so Mary uh, and the other ladies went to this place, this upper room, where the male disciples were hiding out for fear, and they told them the message of this Resurrected Savior, we, he's a, the tomb is empty. He is alive. The one we love is, is alive. And listen what Luke says their reaction was. In Luke's account of this very incident, 
in chapter 24, verse 11, it says, but these words, the words of the women who had been to the empty tomb, these words appeared to them, the male disciples, as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Well, now they realize we were wrong. He's alive. Jesus is alive. And so they're feeling, as you and I would, shame. And I think they're anticipating his word of rebuke and condemnation, but they don't receive it. He doesn't give it. Instead, he says to them, this is what he said, Shalom Aleichem. Would you want to say that with me? It'll clear your throat. It's good. Here, the first one is easy. Shalom, I invite you to, shalom, good. How about this one? Aleichem. And that simply means peace be upon you. Shalom Aleichem. The greeting is given even today. Peace be upon you. So instead of words of rebuke and shame and blame, the resurrected Savior brings a word of peace. And it occurred to me, he still stands ready to bring a word of peace to those of us sinners who run to him for forgiveness of sin. We need not fear his word of rebuke. We're deserving of it, of condemnation. But because of what he's done, he stands ready instead to say, Shalom Aleichem, peace be unto you. Don't worry, you're all right with me now because of what I've done for you with regard to your sin. Well, locked doors gave them no peace. But the presence of their risen Savior surely did. And according to verse 20, we read, when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. Look at my hands, said he. Look at my side. His hands had been pierced through. Do you remember the Roman soldier plunged the spear into the side of the Lord? And he shows them these real physical wounds. You see, he not only gave them great peace, he gave them great proof of his resurrection. There in their midst was an actual physical, uh, uh, bodily, uh, risen Savior. And, and this was no ghost or apparition. In fact, in Luke's account of this episode, once again, in this case, in Luke 24, verse 37, listen to this. It says, they were startled when they saw the Lord. They were startled and they, and they were frightened and they thought that they were seeing a spirit. They thought that they were seeing a ghost. No way. He showed them his literal hands and side. And they realized suddenly this is no ghost, no apparition. We're not hallucinating. No, now they had great proof of an actual physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, their Lord. And I suppose it will come as no surprise to you or me to see how they responded to all this. Here's what the text says. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Can you imagine the change, the transformation from despair and hopelessness and fear and to sheer, utter delight and exhilaration? And they were rejoicing. And so in verse 21, we read, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. He said, them to this now a second time but I don't think they were bothered by it they would never get tired of hearing those words would you 
The Lord Jesus, an unapproachably holy one, perfect, sinless, without flaw, saying to us again and again and again, no, no, peace be with you, peace be with you. I don't think we get tired of hearing that. Now, the first time he uttered that statement, peace be with you, I think he did so to calm their fears. But the second time, I think he uttered that statement not to calm their fears, but to calm their joy, their exhilaration. It was a time of explosive, maybe uncontrollable joy. And so once again, he says to them, Shalom, peace be with you. But why would the Lord want to ask them to settle down and calm down at the peak of their exhilaration and joy? I think it's because he has something very, very important to say to them. And he wants us to to have joy and to gather and together and worship him and be exhilarated. But he doesn't want us to stay there. He wants us now to do something. And so he has a message for them. He has something to say to them and he wants them to settle down. And here it is. This is the message he has for them. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Uh, folks, uh, these, this is a record of the Lord's first spoken words after he rose from the dead. Therefore, it has tremendous import. He could have said all manner of things. This is what he chose to say. In fact, this is the Lord's first post-resurrection sermon. We ought to pay attention. And these are the words of his first sermon after rising from the dead. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. He gave them, by extension, he gave us a mandate, not a suggestion. It's kind of a commandment. In fact, we call it the great, not suggestion, the great commission. This is the first um, evidence of what's on the Lord's heart for us. This is his stated purpose for us. As I've been sent by the Father, I send you. I send you with the same message, the gospel of peace and forgiveness, and I want you to go out and tell the world uh, about it. This is the Great Commission, which, by the way, is mentioned not only here in John, but in each of the four gospels and in Acts as well. This is the central purpose, it seems to me, of the church. As the Father has sent the Lord forth, so in the same manner he sends us forth. This is our purpose as individual believers, and this is the principal purpose, it seems to me, of every local church. So the Lord's crucified and resurrected body had now, it soon will be ascended to the Father, and therefore we, his followers, who are left behind, we are now his body on earth, and Hence, we're referred to in Scripture, believers, that is, we're referred to, are we not, as the body of Christ. The salvation message of Jesus, think about this, cannot be taken to the people of the world unless we, the body of Christ, take it. Therefore, we've been given a very clear mandate to be the Lord's mouth, uh, the Lord's feet, the Lord's hands. We are the body of Christ. And so he says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. But we ought to make no mistake about this. Why, in fact, did the Father send the Son? Why did Jesus come into the world? 
Do you mind me telling you he did not come for social justice? He did not come to inaugurate world peace of a political kind. He did not come to usher in a time of economic prosperity. He did not come to make people happy, healthy, wealthy. I don't like this one, but it's true. He did not come even to make his people immune to the pains and losses and tragedies of life. That is in no wise his stated purpose. The Father sent the Son for this singular purpose to seek and to save those sinners who remain lost. That's why Jesus came. And the Son sends us out for the same purpose. It is, as someone has said, the charter of the church. In case you ever wonder what is our purpose here at Sagemont Church, it is to gather to worship the King. It is to come to grow in grace and knowledge, learn the scriptures. It is to gather together to encourage one another, help each other who are wounded and hurting, be with each other through the joys and Tears of life, absolutely, I understand all that. But the primary charter of this church and any other named by the name of Jesus is to seek and to save those who are lost. That is our primary, that's the great commission. We're here, folks, still, in case you're wondering, why am I still here? Why am I still here? I remember my mother, when she was nearing 100 years old, she used to, even years before that age, uh, she used to say, I'm just wondering why the Lord has left me here. Why am I here? And I remember as lovingly and gently as I could uh, to tell her, it's for the same reason I'm here and all believers are. It is to know him and to make him known. Regardless of our age and gender and ethnicity, state of affairs, health or wealth or the absence thereof, regardless of the situation, everything is a platform to know God and then to make him known. That is the sole purpose for which we are here. And so the Lord Jesus has us here for the purpose of seeing lost people saved from what? From the wrath of God, which is to come. And, and we are to live here in such a way that it makes it easier for unsaved people to want to accept the one who has saved us. That's our job, to make it easier for lost people to believe that our Savior wishes to be their Savior. So whatever it is we do, vocationally or in any other way, whatever we do is to be done to introduce people to the Lord Jesus. That's our great commission. This being the case, let me ask you a bit of a haunting question. It's this, how do we then apply the great commission to our everyday lives? How do we do it? Let me meddle with you a little bit and suggest two things. There are many more. First, I think we should accept our principal purpose is not to be happy. Um, it's not to be healthy. It's not to be prosperous. It's not to have the favor of those around us. It's not to be immune from the throes of life. No, 
We ought to wake up every day and remind ourselves that our stated purpose is to be emissaries of the gospel of peace. The same message of Jesus which ushered us into the kingdom by which our sins are forgiven. It is our purpose to communicate it. Do you mind me stepping on toes just for a second? Um, When was the last time you spoke to anyone about the Jesus you love and who saved you? We're kind of a sleeping giant, the church today. We're distracted by the complexities of life. We're discouraged by the way things are going. And we're getting off base. One suggestion about how to practically apply the Great Commission, therefore, is to wake up every morning reminding yourself, why am I still here? What is my purpose? I'm the voice of the risen, ascended Savior. He wishes to use my vocal cords to tell people about him. If I have a heart for him, why don't I have a voice for him? That's our stated purpose. And the day may hold for you and I unanticipated turns for the worse. An accident here, a bad diagnosis there, something, it doesn't matter. Every circumstance is allowed by God as a platform by which we can bring glory to his name. That is our stated purpose, you see. Let me encourage you to wake up every day saying, Oh God, I represent you. Let me live in such a manner that I make it easier for people to believe in you. You know what that means? You can't go after someone who cuts you off on the road. You don't have that option. We're not allowed to do that. You can't give someone a piece of your mind if they treated you unfairly during the day. For though you may win the argument, you may lose the opportunity to share the gospel with them. You have to wake up and say, I really don't have the rights I think I I have. I have responsibilities, and that is to shine for Jesus Christ. I love this passage. We use it when we go on Missions trips, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light, it's already there because of the light of the world. Let your light so shine, shine in such manner that they, lost people, may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. In this day and age, Brother Stan, when everyone is laying claim to their rights, the church has to lay claim to our responsibilities I'm a member of the body of Christ. Do you mind me telling you this? He has chosen not to get the Great Commission done, but through you and I. If we're lamenting the direction of the world, maybe we ought to look in the mirror. I'm not sure the problem is with those out there. Maybe the problem is with us in here. When was the last time you engaged, I engaged anyone in a conversation about the Lord Jesus Christ? That's our primary role. So I encourage you, wake up every day reminding yourself of your principal purpose. And secondly, wake up every day making sure you know of the message you are to proclaim. It's called the gospel message. It's the good news. It's a message about forgiveness. Wake up every day intent 
on seeing the opportunities God has given. I, I can tell you in the last week, I'm ashamed to tell you, I, I, I can recount the number of opportunities I let go. I do not have to ask God for opportunities. They're all over the place. The UPS guy who delivers the package, the mechanic who's working on my car, the people who are cutting grass, there are opportunities all over the place. The physician who's trying to get me healthy but who is absolutely spiritually sick himself or herself, there are opportunities galore. I've ceased to ask God for opportunities. I've asked him, oh God, would you give me eyes to see? You know what it is for me? I just get caught up with the stuff of life. And what's more rewarding to me than sharing with the UPS guy is making sure the package he delivers is intact. No. See, I have to remind myself it is, it is not my intended purpose in life for things to go smoothly. It's God's purpose for me to be intentional about proclaiming the gospel message. I challenge you, wake up every day reminding yourself who you are. I am a member of the body of Christ. I'm an ambassador for Christ. I've been entrusted with the gospel message. It is this which I must proclaim, which leads me to this. Would you, would you train yourself to be able to encapsulate the gospel message, at least in a few words, so that you're ready to proclaim them. Be prepared. I, I use something myself when I'm not distracted by foolish things. It's a mere 40 words. I just, I just needed something. An economy of words is a conversation starter. Here it is. Sometimes I can even remember it by heart. I can say to the UPS man, the pizza delivery person, the physician, the dentist, the plumber, I can say, hey, I know you're busy, but let me tell you first about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It was when I realized that God was willing to forgive all my sins. How? <laughs> Through the death of his son Jesus on the cross in my place. And then you could say, what do you think about that. And then see where God takes it. I challenge you. Make it your business at least once during this week. There are many ways to share the gospel. This way is just one, but if you have none, take this one. Memorize the 40 words or at least the message encapsulated in those words and make it happen. Make a conversation happen. Be intentional about the Great Commission. If that's what I have been given as a mandate. If this is the sum total of the Lord's first post-resurrection sermon, I ought to get trained up and I ought to get better at it. And listen, you can sit in as many evangelism training seminars as you want, but I think the best training is get in the battle and then you'll find out what you don't know and need to know better. We already know more than we're using right now. You know Jesus as your personal Savior. Nobody knows more about what he's done for you than you. Go tell someone. Make it happen. You can do it in a letter if you're a little sheepish. You can make a list of those 
people you grew up with, went to high school with, hadn't seen in years, and you could hunt them down their address, and you could write to them, you could say, hello, so-and-so, I don't know if you remember me. It's been 20, 30 years since we were in school together. I don't know what course life has taken you. It surely has taken me in a direction I never anticipated, and I want to share it with you now. And you can share these 40 words, and you could say, Thank you so much for reading this. I'd love to know what your response is to this. If I don't hear from you, I'll contact you again. <laughs> I mean, the New Testament consists of letters that changed lives. Why don't you be a letter writer? Write where you are. Use a computer. Use letters. Make something happen. Be intentional about the Great Commission, the mandate which gives us our life's purpose. That's what the Lord Jesus said. Now listen to this. If you are comfortable about the great commission that the Lord has given us, if you're comfortable about these words, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. If you're comfortable about that, there's something wrong with you. You should not be comfortable. Those words should overwhelm you with a sense of inadequacy. You should say, I know how the Father has sent the Lord Jesus, but for him to require the same of me, I'm not Jesus. I'm flawed, I'm imperfect, I have impure motives, I struggle with sin. He was not subject to any of those things. If you're not made to feel overwhelmingly inadequate by this statement by the Lord Jesus, then there's something wrong with you. But here's the problem. The Great Commission has become, for many of us, the great omission because we've been so overcome by a sense of inadequacy, we've let paid professional pastors and others do the job that has been given by the Lord Jesus to each believer. But you say, but I, but I am inadequate for the task. What am I to do? Hang on just for a second. Do you think the Lord Jesus would require something of us that he doesn't enable us to do? Would you like to see the enablement he has given us to take the gospel beyond ourselves in our communities and around the world? Here it is, verse 22. And when he had said this, here's what it says, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Folks, the Lord Jesus not only gave great peace, he not only gave great proof, he has not only given a great purpose, but don't you see, he has given us great power. When the Lord Jesus went, he went to send his very spirit to inhabit and indwell us. And so the first thing the Lord declared in his first post-resurrection sermon is that he has given us the great commission to take the gospel to others. We're here in the world for the sake of the gospel. And the second thing he declared in his first post-resurrection sermon is that we're not going to be able to do it alone. And therefore, he has given us his very spirit to indwell us. And so with the Great Commission, he's given us a great spirit in us in order to get the job done, as a result of which the Lord could declare quite persuasively in verse 23, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. 
But if you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now hold on just a second. Does that seem to be saying that God has given us the power to forgive sins? No. That's a wrong conclusion. That is not what this is saying at all. There's not one episode in all of Scripture where any apostle manifested the authority to forgive sins. No way. No clergy, no priest, no pope, nobody is given the power and authority to forgive sins. To think this verse is saying that is a misinterpretation of the verse. No, this verse is not saying that God has given us the power to forgive sins. You know what it's saying? It's saying that God has given us not the power, but the privilege to tell others that God stands willing through faith in Christ Jesus to forgive sins. And therefore, if a person receives the gospel message, we could absolutely look them in the eye and say to them, now I know God has forgiven you. But if a person having heard the gospel of forgiveness, rejects that message, we could just as authoritatively and boldly look that person in the eye and say, I know now that your sins are not forgiven. We do not have the authority to provide forgiveness, but we do have the privilege of proclaiming forgiveness to those who accept Jesus, the one who died for our sins. You can tell someone, therefore, that all their sins can be forgiven if they will repent and accept Jesus Christ. And then you could ask, are you interested? Are you interested in forgiveness, which is available through Jesus Christ? And some people will say to you, no. But others are quite interested. And the gospel is for people who are interested in forgiveness, and our job is to go out and find them. Folks, today is the holiest day in the Jewish faith. It's called Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. The synagogues are filled up right now with Jews all over the world, aware of the fact that they are vulnerable to judgment in the eyes of an otherwise unapproachably holy God. And what they're doing today, they're fasting, they're not eating. They're showing this as a sign of serious repentance. They're making commitments to live better in the next year. They're pleading to God for forgiveness. They're making vows and promises. They're contributing sums of money to the poor. They're doing whatever they could to try to persuade God to forgive them. It's a shame. Because he's already made provision for it. Fast if you want to. <laughs> Make promises if you want to. But the gospel of peace says forgiveness has already been provided by the Lamb of God, Rabbi Yeshua, Jesus, the Son of God, the only mediator between God and man, the sinless one who came to die for sinners. And whose shed blood covers up the scarlet nature for our sin. All our sins are cast behind his back. I need not look anywhere else for atonement. I don't have to beg God. I should thank God. Oh, thank you for forgiving me a Jew, a Gentile, anybody 
thank you for providing the means of forgiveness for my sin. For so many of my people, they're not interested in that message of forgiveness, but some are. You're looking at one. And there are a whole lot of others like me out there. Go on a treasure hunt. I dare you to do this. Get up tomorrow intent on really living according to your life's purpose. I'm trying to make application to my own life as well. Go on a treasure hunt. You have been entrusted. I have been entrusted with the gospel of forgiveness. Some don't want to hear it. Okay. There's nothing I can do about it but continue to pray. But others do. And I can tell them about the means of forgiveness. It's not in good works and it's not in any religion, Judaism, Islam, any other. It's in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't have to get in arguments with people. I could go on a treasure hunt. There are folks out there in, who, in whose life God's spirit is already working. And they're waiting for someone, some ordinary person just like you and I, to come with them with extraordinary news. What a find this would be, wouldn't it? To find one of these treasures. Someone else, a son or daughter, about to be adopted into the family of God through the means of the gospel shared by ordinary folks like you and I. Folks, I was in the army for a number of years. We stink at peace. We're only useful in war. You know what we do in peace? We waste time. We train, we train, we talk about war, we clean up our weapons, we do all this kind of stuff. It's a waste of time. We go to war with one another because we got nothing else to do. We bicker, we complain. We don't have anything else to do. As soon as we get orders, we're ready to go. A peacetime army is a waste of time. We're not the Peace Corps. What about us as believers? When we're not engaged in the battle of winning souls, we turn on one another, we complain about the temperature, about the songs, about the sermon, about this and about that. We turn on one another. You didn't greet me rightly. You didn't come to my relative's funeral. We got nothing else to do. We sit around recreating. We read so many books about the Christian life for crying out loud. We go to Christian movies. We do all this kind of stuff. When was the last time you or I did what we're supposed to do? Tell somebody about Jesus. That's the great commission. That's the charter of this church and every other called by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the gospel, folks, is not about social justice. I didn't say we shouldn't be interested, but it's not about that. The gospel is not about climate change. The gospel is not about you being healthy or well or being fairly treated by the government, the so-called justice system. That is not the gospel message. The gospel message is not about health and wealth. And the gospel message promises nothing about immunity to pain. Well, what then is the gospel message? In closing, let me just... Tell you what Paul has to say about it. He states it quite clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. Here's what he says about the gospel. I deliver to you as of 
first importance. First importance. That's what he says. What I also received. That's what he said. That Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the scriptures. And that he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day. In accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel message. Anything else is a distraction. I didn't say there aren't other important issues. But Paul himself says... This is the one I delivered to you as of first importance. Could I ask you once again, when was the last time you made sharing the gospel a matter of first importance for you? My dear friends, we ought to be praying for one another's physical maladies, but we also ought to be praying for ones we know of and are relating to who remain unsaved. Do you realize how little of that enters our prayer list here at Sagemont Church? Folks, the worst that can happen to a believer is that he or she dies and goes right to be with the Father in a new glorified body. It is not a tra tragedy when a believer goes home. It's a tragedy when an unbeliever passes into eternity apart from Almighty God. That's a tragedy I guess I am stepping on toes. Why is it that 99% of our prayer requests have to do with our kidneys, our spleens, our hearts, our cancer, our diabetes? Please make those matters of prayer along with petition for unsaved ones we are praying for by name. Folks, what's happened to us? I don't like the direction of international politics, neither do you. Morality and ethics is going in a downward spiral. I got all of that. But I think the real problem is in here, not out there. Unsaved people out there are acting in a way that is consistent with their unregenerated state. But saved people in here are not acting in a way that's consistent with our calling to be salt and to be light. I'm disgusted with myself because I could get more concerned about my leaking hot water heater or my tire which needs to be inflated or this tooth which hurts. I could be more lathered up about that than having eyes to see the harvest which is white and ready for the picking all around me. And could I get even more obnoxious? If the bulk of your time is spent here with other Christians, you're not in the battle. I would rather people not come to this church quite as often. I don't have the authority to say this, but here I am doing it. I would rather that people come less here and more to connect with and relate to unsaved people out there. I don't think you need a, a, uh, to duplicate everything out there. Church athletic teams, this and that, and ceramic clubs and quilting. These are all good things. Why not join a community quilting club, ceramic club, softball team, and thus maybe get a couple of hits, but also 
when the opportunity to share the gospel with your teammates. Uh, the world is passing us by because we are ignoring them because it's easier to be in here than out there. Please come in here. But not as an end in itself. The Lord said, peace be unto you. Calm it down, your worship and focus of attention on bowing before me. That's really good, but get up. I got a message for you. Don't you see as the Father sent me, I sent you. Have eyes to see the folks who need to hear the gospel. It's not about prosperity or health. It's not about anything like that. The gospel addresses humankind's fundamental problem, and here it is. It is not climate change. Man's fundamental problem is separation from his creator because of sin. That's man's fundamental problem. And we know the means of reconciliation. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Can you imagine being trusted with that message of reconciliation, the gospel of peace, and withholding it? Don't do it anymore. Get with the program. Be intentional about personal evangelism. The gospel is about forgiveness based on repentance and faith in Jesus Christ who suffered and died in our place and who then rose again from death to intercede for us right now from heaven. And by the way, he's also the one who's coming back maybe soon to judge the living and the dead. It's the gospel of peace. It's the good news about how we renegade, rebellious sinners can come to be at peace with an otherwise unapproachably holy God, and it's all by his grace, which is why whenever you see greetings in the New Testament epistles, it always is in this order, grace and peace. You cannot be at peace with God apart from his grace. The gospel is the gospel of grace. Don't you think there are others out there who are waiting to hear it and who would welcome it just like you and I have? Go find them. Go on a treasure hunt. About 100 years ago, someone wrote a song about the marvelous grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the words, marvelous grace of our loving God, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the lamb was spilled. Go tell somebody. And then the writer has a chorus. It's grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon. And You know these words, don't you? Sing it with me, would you? Sing it with me. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all. That's the gospel message. Go tell a sinner. The Lord Jesus comes with grace greater than all his or her sin. Listen how the words of this song go on. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What, what can we do to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide brighter than snow. You may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. 
you who are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Go tell someone tomorrow. Will you, a sinner, vulnerable to the judgment of holy God, will you this moment his grace receive? Let's stand together. Let's sing the chorus just one more time. We'll be on our way uh, to get in the battle, to get in the game, (laughs) to live according to our purpose. There's more uh, sleeplessness, anxiety, and depression in the body of Christ today than uh, perhaps there's ever been. I wonder it's because we just have too much time to think, to reflect, to sit around, to cogitate. (sighs) I wonder if we got in the battle, it would be very therapeutic for us because we'd have less time to introspect and think about our stuff. What beautiful words. Let's sing it. It's grace, grace, God's grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all. How about a deal? Share with someone the message of God's grace this week and next week come and tell us about it. I don't care what pearls of wisdom I think I have. We'll set it aside to hear from you. Let us rejoice in the battle you were engaged in, the spiritual battle for someone's soul. It might be someone who walked away from the message of forgiveness. It might be someone who's embraced it. Whatever it is, I dare you. I'm going to do the same thing. I want to get someone who I can share the gospel with, leaving the results to God. And I want to have something to share with you next week. How about you? Uh, What if there's 15, 20? What if there's 100? Oh, my goodness. We won't get to the Bible lesson. Yay. (laughs) Let's get to work. And if you don't sense the grace of God, if you don't sense that you're in a peaceful relationship with him even now stick around meet with us in the connection center so we can talk to you about the prince of peace who wishes for you to understand he has the same message for you shalom aleichem i've come to grant you peace with the father through my shed blood on the cross god bless you folks see you next week get in the battle let's talk about it next week